Hello and welcome to Mythgard Movie Club. This is the reincarnation of Mythgard Movie Club, uh, originally founded by Kat and Curtis. And uh, we're just picking it back up because we have things we want to talk about. Um, so we're starting off with uh, The Green Knight, directed by David Lowry. Uh, this is a recent release. And we're going to talk about a whole slew of different stuff because we are four people that just love this content, um, love what he showed, how he showed it. And we've got things to discuss that we didn't like as well and things that we're a bit confused about. Um, so just first to introduce you to who's here, um, we've got Gabriel Schenk, uh, lecturer at Sigmund Uni. If you want to wave and say hello, um, that is DPhil in the Arthurian Lit. Um, he's also doing a new course for Signum in the spring called The Return of King Arthur. So he is our, our King Arthur go-to. Um, Ashley Thomas is aka The Nerdy Blogger. She is a Signum Uni grad, freelance writer for fangirlish um, popular culturama and the Dearly Debated podcast. And she also has an excellent episode. Um, oh, what's it called? Real Talk? Uh, yes, uh, Real Talk, which is on the We Made This podcast network, uh, where I got to discuss uh, The Green Knight which we'll link in the YouTube comment, um, YouTube description, and we can put it in the chat here. Um, but there's an excellent episode of that uh, where she talks about the Green Knight, if anybody wants even more discussion about this. Um, Kat Sass, am I from uh, Signum as well? She hosts a weekly podcast on speculative TV, Kat and Kurt's TV review blogs about Doctor Who, Game of Thrones, all these lovely things. Um, and she also has a fantastic blog post about Green Knight as well on her blog, Raving Sanity. So we'll link that as well. And I am Maggie Park. I did my MA in Arthurian Lit um, and my PhD in film adaptation and fan culture. I lecture with Singham University and I'm the director of the Mythbird Institute. Um, so that's who we are and why we're talking to you. Um, but we're really talking to you because we got some strong opinions and some thoughts about this film. Um, so we're just gonna give a quick overview about the movie, um, how it was made, why it's different. Um, I'm gonna look to dear Dr. Gabriel over here to give us a little bit about the source material. What do we know? how did this adaptation come about um and then we'll just go through some of the things that stood out to us so i'm going to stop sharing now so you can see everybody i just yeah i didn't even realize that i had the slide up and on the recording you're only going to see me so i'm having you guys wave and, <laughs> and they weren't able to see you oh well <laughs> that's okay um all right let me get out of this all right so we're going to start with just like a general little chat and overview um about the program about the uh, the film itself um directed by david lowry quite a young guy very avant-garde director um very creative if you take a look at some of the things that he's done uh, a ghost story he's uh pete's dragon the recent adaptation of the children's fantasy disney thing but very different than the disney film um he's also slated to do this new one peter pan and wendy which i am overly fascinated about um, and Green Knight is uh, put out by A24 Productions, and they're known for a bit avant-garde, uh, independent type films, Uncut Gems, um, that crazy quirky one with Adam Sandler, uh, Lady Bird, Lighthouse, Farewell, Disaster Artist, Ghost Story, and I've just added The Witch, Hereditary, and Midsummer, which I did not watch because they're horror films, but Ashley corrected me that they are phenomenal films, I don't do horror. Um, so A24, I think, automatically gave me a bit of an impression of what kind of film this was going to be. I'm like, ooh, interesting. Um, it had a budget of $15 million, very low budget in the grand scheme of things. Um, I did look up box office return because I personally find that really interesting in terms of adaptation and box office results. But it, it's got a story um, about how it was released. So it's quite low. It's $18.3 million. Um, it had a very limited release, and that's just the U.S. and Canada box office return. So this was originally supposed to premiere at uh, South by Southwest, 
in 2020, um, but that was canceled for COVID. Um, David Lowry later said that he was really grateful for that because the film that he would have put out at South by Southwest was not the one that he wanted to put out. So he had an additional six months to do an edit. Um, and he ended up spending a lot of time editing the film to what we see now. Um, and he said in particular, there's a wonderful Vanity Fair YouTube video that I'll link in here as well. Um, he said in particular, the scene around the round table where we first see the Green Knight come in and set the challenge. He spent a year editing that. He would work on other bits, but always go back to that scene at the end of the day and just tweak it until the rhythm got right and the cadence got right. And I just love that kind of dedication from an artist that he's just really obsessed over it. Um, so you can see kind of the, the thought that went into it. So it did eventually come out, but it came out in a very limited release and straight to streaming in the UK on Amazon. Um, there was a very small theatrical release over here in the UK. Um, there was a limited release in the US as well, but a bit more widespread than here. And you can buy it now on DVD and Blu-ray and, and download and things like that. So a bit more widely accessible. Did I miss anything? Ashley and Kat, you guys know a fair bit about the production as well. Anything major that you think folks need to know? Um, it's something I've noticed uh, when I watch A24 films is they tend to like to use a, the same pool of actors. So you've got a lot of actors in The Green Knight that are also in uh, other A24 uh, productions. Um, in particular in this film, I because I, I'm a big Game of Thrones fan or I'm a Song of Ice and Fire fan, not as much of the show anymore, but uh, um, uh, Kate Dickey and Ralph Ineson who were in, um, you know, The Green Knight. parents in the witch which is a wonderful atmospheric horror film that you should watch this halloween season 10 out of 10 would recommend um but i know that they're not the only ones there's a lot of um you know acting talent that also appears in other a24 films as well in this film i think the disclaimer i would give now is if you don't know anything about going in the green knight as a story um We'll link this as well. And, and once I'm done talking and somebody else is talking, I'll put the links in the chat. So if you're here live, you can go check these out too. Um, but there is a A24 put out like a, a short couple minute video in promotion for Gawain and the Green Knight that basically talks about the media of the source it came from and the adaptation that they are doing. Um, so it covers a lot of your background. So it's like a quick historical mini TED talk. Um, oh, look, already there. Um, so you can check that out. Uh, if you have no previous conception about what this story is. So that being said, spoilers from here on out, we will be talking about all details of this film. Um, so if you don't wanna hear about it before you've seen it, come back later <laughs> and otherwise stick with us cause we're gonna dig in. So I wanna start really generally and you guys can duke it out. Did you like it? What'd you think about this? I liked it. I know that other people well i know that you liked it as well ashley um so i'm not sure we'll be duking it out too much um what one thing that did surprise me was um some people's reactions saying oh gosh it's very different different and like it's very loose adaptation and they sort of or it's very weird I'm, I'm not quite sure i understood it i didn't think it was that strange but then i went into it having heard some of those opinions on twitter because being in the uk uh, we had to wait a long time before we saw the film based um, compared to the Americans. Um, so I kind of went into it thinking it's going to be set on Mars or something like they're going to 
take some wild uh, artistic license. And then I thought, oh, they're sticking with the Middle Ages. Very faithful ad adaptation. <laughs> but I still think it's a very faithful adaptation. Um, and not that weird or not any weirder than the poem. Um, what I really liked about it was that usually when you translate a text to a film, you fix it, you, you sort of freeze it in time. Um, it's very much a version of events uh, and it's difficult to see anything else other than that. Whereas in the in it as a text there's always going to be lots of different um interpretations so we could go around the room now and we could all say what we think the poem is about the story of Gawain and the green knight what is that about and i have a very set idea of what it's about um but i bet you everyone else has different ideas as well and i think we could do exactly the same thing with the film and it's quite rare that we can do both things um Obviously, there are kind of set things in the film. Um, the fact that they cast Treebeard at the end as the Green Knight is part of the vision. But still, when we're thinking about character motivations and the meaning of some of the uh, elements of the plot, I, I think we're going to be taking different things from it. Um, and I really like that. Uh, the thing that is usually only reserved for texts is also part of this film. Uh, so for me, it's among the best, if not the best uh, film adaptations of Arthurian literature. It's not an amazing company. There's been some stinkers, um, but there's been a few good ones as well. And um, actually an another good Arthurian film is Lancelot de Lac, a 1974 French film. And the thing that that film has in common with The Green Knight is that they both have a wonderful sense of atmosphere. Uh, and I think that those films are successful in translating the atmosphere of a medieval text to screen without kind of limiting to it too much. So I thought it was, it was, it was fantastic. It was very successful. Uh, I haven't seen other film ad adaptations of The Green Knight. I know there's one with Sean Connery as The Green Knight. Um, but I think that uh, having looked at those a little bit, I think that they're, they're going to be sort of fixed in a way that this film wasn't fixed in a, in a single interpretation. And that's what I really liked about it. That's the beauty of adaptation. So many different interpretations of the same thing, but it's one person's interpretation. So it doesn't have to be the be all end all. Um, Ashley, how about you? Um, I, there was so much I really enjoyed about the film. Um, it's probably been 15 or 16 years since I've actually read The Green Knight. So it's been quite a while. Um, so the, the original story wasn't as fresh in my mind. I did read like the Wikipedia article before I went in just to kind of, you know, get a, get a little bit of a primer. Um, I, I'm a big aesthetics person when it comes to film. I love uh, cinematography. I love seeing like, um, the way certain filmmakers like to use color schemes and green is my favorite color. So this is, there was so much green here. It made me so happy. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Um, Gabriel, uh, your comment about people reacting to the film uh, was really interesting to me. Uh, my husband saw the film before I did. And he said that um, there were, he was like one of three people in the theater. Cause he went like, 
in the middle of the day on a Tuesday or something. And he's like, the other two people walked out of the theater halfway through. Um, he's like, you people are idiots because this is great. I don't know <laughs> like what's, what's wrong with you, but this is wonderful. Um, he really enjoyed it. Um, and he's like, you've got to go see it. You got to go see it. And it was like a few more weeks before I actually got uh, the opportunity to do so. Um, but something that would have really like taken me by surprise and confused me um, had he not it gave me a little bit of a heads up before he's like the last like 20 30 minutes of the film are basically a silent movie so um that i think was off-putting to some folks um but i thought the way that was executed was completely brilliant um so overall i had a blast with the movie um i thought it was aesthetically just gorgeous um and i really loved uh, you know the cast and the cinematography i i don't have any complaints about this movie so Kat, what about you? Awesome. I have a few complaints. Um, <laughs> and I think Gabriel was looking at me when he said he wasn't sure whether other, everyone enjoyed it. I did enjoy it, um, genuinely. Um, I think it, it looks amazing. Um, and I really um, I respect Lowry's um, kind of uh, his interpretive vision. And he clearly had a vision for this. Um, and so if you're going into this with the kind of A24 auteur, you know, aesthetic in mind, like this definitely is in line with those other movies. Um, I think that, uh, I, I do think that it's, it's a more radical reinterpretation than some people um, on the other side of the fence maybe are giving that credit for. I think like the ways in which it, it is a faithful adaptation on mostly on what I would call like a, a more surface level in terms of the plot. And, but I think that where there are changes, I think they're a little more fundamental. Um, and we can talk about, it's not so much changes to what happens so much as the little things that are different, maybe change the, um, the, the meaning or the philosophy at a slightly deeper level. Um, so, and, and I think that's because um, I had, I'm no expert on the text, but um, I, I was very excited for this movie and refreshed my memory with um, reading a couple translations over the summer. Um, so, so potentially my, my, my bar had been set a little high, um, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't mind the changes. I you know, respect the ones that were made. Um, I don't love every decision and, and I'm still kind of trying to figure out exactly why that is. Um, and, and in fact, some of the things I loved the most were the, the really radical departures like that, that extended dream vision ending um, or the, the pieces where he completely invented new story on the journey north. Um, I thought that for me was some of the most successful stuff. And the parts where I had quibbles where were the places where I thought that he had made a change and it wasn't to whatever extent that this matters. It wasn't hundred percent clear to me whether he understood the change he was making and the implications. And maybe he totally does. And he's intentionally being subversive and I'm not giving him enough credit, but I'm not sure. So, so those were the areas where, where it might've rubbed me a little wrong. Um, but overall, I certainly enjoyed watching the movie and, and I think it's, really meaty and interesting and worth talking about. 
Kat, I think you hit nail on the head of, of a lot of people's reactions to adaptations because everybody has such a personal engagement with an original mm-hmm. source text. If you've read the material before and then you go see the film, most people walk in there with torches and pitchforks ready to start a fight. You know, like you're very protective of these texts. And the fact that you reread it before seeing it, it was very fresh in your head. So that can sometimes be really difficult, right? Um, luckily, I haven't read it since I was a grad student, so it's been a very long time. So I came into it very fresh, um, and I have to say, I really loved it as a film. Uh, this is most definitely one of those that I make a clear distinction between movie and film. This is not a great movie. This is an excellent film. You know, this is a film that I would use in classes as let's talk about diegetic sound. Let's talk about role of thirds. Let's talk about cinematography. Let's talk about symbology, symbology, symbolism. Um, You know, all these things that are just in this film and you can tell he put so much thought into every decision, whether it was, you know, accurate or, you know, faithful to the source material up for discussion. But there's so much that you can dive into that I think it's beautiful. It's a piece of art. Will I watch it 17 times in four days? Like I will with really good movies. You know, it's not a Thor Ragnarok in my book. Of like, I just want to marathon this and watch it back to front over and over again. Um, but actually, I think it was you that said it's now in your list of subversive Christmas films. You're like, yeah, I 100% want to watch this every Christmas and be like, yep, this is a Christmas movie now. Yeah, yeah. The um, uh, My friend Ian that I uh, recorded the podcast with about... Um, green night for um real talk um the the line in um the song the christmas song it's the most wonderful time of the year uh, about uh tales uh scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of christmas is long long ago it's like this is one of the scary ghost stories that they uh that they talk about uh that one and a christmas carol i couldn't think of any other christmas and there's loads of red there's loads of green i mean it happens at christmas it it, it makes sense to me so like yeah yeah, i i thought this was an absolutely brilliant film and there's so many different points that i would love to talk about that i'm pretty sure i could teach an entire semester's worth of classes on just this film but um yeah i really enjoyed it i would definitely give it a high mark and probably one of my fave films of the year fave movies I don't know I don't know how many times I'll watch it but I can already kind of feel it seeping in I mean I watched it for the first time a week ago and I've already watched it three and a half times so that bodes well um well and 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 I'll add that I have I've only seen it once and it was a while ago when it came out here I saw it in a movie theater and and only one time and then it's been sort of in the limbo between you know uh, movie theaters and and streaming here so I am definitely eager to to revisit because I came out of it with so many thoughts and it was like I definitely need to see this again um, and can I also just say too and I'm telling this to myself with my own questions and things like I, and I'm kind of repeating something I said in my blog post but like certainly there's no adaptation without change from the source text. That's kind of the definition of what adaptation means. If you're not adapting it, it's just the original thing. Um, And what could be more Arthurian than telling a new version of an old story? So I think for myself or anyone that has reservations, like you definitely need to approach it as its own thing, its own story, and try to understand it and take it on its own terms, whether or not it works for you on those terms. Well, and we're starting with a really vague thing. You know, the Arthurian legend itself is not exactly based in a locked-in historical accuracy piece of literature. You know, it's pieced together by a lot of different texts. Um, so I'm going to shortly turn to you, Gabriel, and tell us what you, what we do know of this source material. Um, and one of the things that I loved about David Lowry's piece was that opening scene where they flash 
the green knight how many times like 65 times in different colors and different typefaces to, to me just told us yes there's a thousand different ways we can tell this story and it has been told a thousand different ways um so i think that's also just the nature of adaptation it comes from a vague source we've got multiple ways that we can tell it so gabriel i'll shift over to you well, I mean, there's not a huge amount to say. I mean, it's a late 14th century poem. Um, it's uh, written by Anonymous, which is, I think is a bit of a joke. Um, and so this actually goes back to, to what you were saying, Kat, that there were some changes where you weren't sure whether David Lowry really understood what he was doing. Um, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I think he did. But one of those is when it says, based on the chivalric romance by and then big bold letters, Anonymous is the author. And that's a bit of a joke because it's not written by Anonymous, it's written by an unknown poet. Um, not unusual that we don't know the name of the poet of Gawain and the Green Knight. We don't know the name of lots of medieval writers. Um, the ones that we do know, we only know because they, at some point in their romances, they say, hi, I'm Chrétien de Troyes. You may remember me from such romances as Auvergne, Le Chevalier de Lyon. Um, you know, we don't have these nice books with the author on the, the title, so on the cover page. So um, this then causes a problem for Amazon because they have to have an author. And so they put in anonymous. And so you can click on anonymous and then you can find out all the other books that anonymous has written. And anonymous has been very prolific over a long period of time. And so when it comes up on the screen, it says this chivalric romance by Anonymous, I think it's sort of playing with that idea um, that we want to put a name to this, even when there is no name, just saying the Gawain poet or something like that seems a cop out. And of course, there's something wonderfully creepy about Anonymous as if they're hiding in the shadows or something which fits in with the film as well. So anyway, I'm going off on a tangent, but it's written by Anonymous, um, mostly called the Gawain poet, sometimes called the Gawain Pearl poet, because this poet probably also wrote um, Pearl, which is another fantastic medieval text. Um, it was, uh, it survives in just one manuscript. Um, it sort of went spinning off into the ether for centuries. Nobody read it. Uh, it's not included, for example, in this big bugger of a book, um, Sir Thomas Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur, and it's not like Mallory was keeping stuff out. Uh, he just didn't know Gawain and the Green Knight because nobody knew it. Um, uh, so nobody was really reading it for a long time. Um, the text itself uh, does have some pieces cobbled together from other sources, so the beheading thing comes from uh, Irish uh, legend, um, the kind of exchanging of gifts as well as a bit of a trope. Um, but um, but it, it seems to be a very original work. Um, it's a very fine piece of literature. Uh, there's lots of translations. You can read it in the original if you really try. Um, and it came back in the 1830s. Um, so it's a product of Victorian medievalism. Um, Tennyson was beginning to write his Arthurian uh, texts, uh, Lady Charlotte Guest, publishing and translating the Mabinogion, um, Sir Walter Scott's medieval um, chivalric novels were becoming very popular. Um, so Gawain and the Green Knight comes back in, in the kind of the rebirth of interest in the Arthurian legend and the Middle Ages and has stuck around ever since and is usually now always included in um, editions of the Arthurian legends. It's become part of the canon. 
Um, so Roger Lonsland Green and John Steinbeck, I assume has that and um, Rosemary Sutcliffe, you know, always has Gawain and the Green Knight in there. So that's the kind of summary of the text, I think. Excellent. Yeah, and I know David Lowry said that he was just inspired by medieval um, chivalric romances anyway. So it, I don't know if it had to be this one for him. It just fit what he was seeking out. And he said he was inspired by, you know, Willow and, and um, oh God, what was the other one? The really terrible Tom Cruise one, Legend? Yeah, I think he talked about that one too. Yeah, Le Legend. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the terrible <laughs> Tom Cruise one. Uh, but but I really it's a great Tim Curry that. movie. It's a great Tim Curry movie. <laughs> it's a good save. Um, I kind of want to start with that first comment that uh, Sarah just put in here. I'm with Kat. What's the film's message? I can't discern the moral premise. I find it hard to relate to Gawain. He needs to save the cat moment in the first act. Um, save the cat moment is a redeeming element. So I, I fully agree with this. Like, I don't want to jump too far into lecture mode, but like one of the main things about this is that Gawain is supposed to be a knight, right? And he's not a knight yet. He needs to do these tasks, but he kind of fails at all of them. He's not really lovable or you're rooting for him. I mean, the opening scene is him in a brothel. So you're kind of immediately starting with him as this kind of immoral, ambiguous kind of dude, are you really a knight of the round table? Because you don't strike me as chivalrous and virtuous and all those beautiful things. What do you guys think? Well, I, I, I mean, I could leap in, but I just gave a big lecture. So <laughs> I want to give Kat and Ashley uh, the opportunity. Well, one of the moments, I might not get the dialogue exactly right, but one of the moments that stuck in my mind was when he goes, I think he's with the Lord Bertilak with um, Joel Edgerton. And um, he said, he asked him like, why are you on this quest? And going says like, honor question mark? and and he kind of says like are, are you asking me like is that is that the answer to your question or like so and I think again like I said I'm still working through like the question mark part of the end of that sentence is is um a little bit of of point of hesitation to me and and certainly gets into the ambiguity that's all over this movie so I mean so yeah, ostensibly he's he's doing this for honor, but um, I'm not sure um, uh, that that is always a consistent sort of through line throughout this movie. Um, I mean, I think it, it does get into it to a certain extent towards the end, and maybe I don't want to get quite into the end. Um, but but one of the changes it it does make is is going sort of taking off of the sash at the end and kind of facing death head on. So I think in that moment, there is a kind of clear moral center of um, we're, we're here to kind of face our fears rather than run from them. Um, but, but yeah, some of Gawain's moral ambiguity from the poem, the things that he struggles with in the poem, I think in the film, he kind of actively um, fails at rather than just struggling with them. Um, so, and, and again, I think that's a, that's a fairly big change to the, the kind of root message of the story. Um, so yes, somebody else go. Well, so, um, one of the lines in the film that really, um, I think is, is a good, um, kind of through line, uh, throughout the, the entire story of the film is, um, 
before he leaves on his journey, Essel, he's talking with Essel, you know, the, the prostitute that he hangs out with. Um, he says, uh, or she says to him, why do you have to be a great man? Why can't you just be a good man? Um, and I think while, yeah, there's some change like with the original, well, the original quote unquote story uh, of, you know, Gowan's not an, a knight yet uh, in this iteration. Uh, so he's not proved himself, he's unproven. So he wants to be great, um, but it's not, in my opinion, it's not settling to be a good man. I think there are lots of great men that are not good men, quote unquote. And so I think that kind of drives the story as him. He's trying to be a great man. He's trying to achieve this honor and recognition or whatever. And at the end, um, he really kind of settles on, even if I'm terrified, even if this will cost me my life, I have to live up to this moral code. And he becomes a good man in that moment. So for me, it's not necessarily, yeah, he needs to save the cat moment so we can root for him. The whole movie is his save the cat moment so he can he can finally be rooted for in the end. So there totally yeah. is that argument. He's very relatable, yeah. you know, because he's so stinking flawed. Yeah. Um, and I remember David Lowry in one of his interviews was talking about uh, his own legacy as a filmmaker. And he said he didn't want to get tied up in his own legacy. He just wanted to live with integrity and make good projects and be a good human. So he tried to pull as much of that into this. And I thought that was really interesting of like, hmm, putting yourself in Gawain's shoes. And Yeah, that that's really fascinating. I hadn't heard that. And that makes perfect sense to me mm -hmm. based on how I inter I'm interpreting the film. And how long they held out for that save the cat moment. I mean, oh, we gosh. got two hours in before we got a redeeming moment. But if that is what sets him up for success for the rest of his life, when we just saw how crappy his life could be, if he didn't hold up to that, mm -hmm. that, that does make it quite powerful. Yeah. And, and in that reading, it's almost, I don't know, an inversion or a happier version of, of the original because he, he kind of does what he's supposed to do, but, but kind of fails in the end. You know, he has the sash with him, he cheats. And the, the knight kind of laughs it off. Like, oh, you did great. Don't worry about it. And he goes home and everyone at Callan's like, you're fantastic. Don't worry about it. And, he, and it's kind of a little bit like he's left with this feeling of ambiguity. Like, did I really fulfill that, that code of honor that, you know, the, the game that I was supposed to play? So even though we kind of don't get we get no definitive ending in this movie, but if you take it in the way that Ashley intends it, of this is a culminating kind of finally a hero moment for the character, it sort of ends on a more positive note, potentially than the kind of like petered out ambiguity of the poem. I th that's a great way to look at it. And there's also so many points where they're talking about like masculinity and identity and what it means to be a knight. And basically for him to be successful, he has to become submissive. Like that's real interesting. Like you, you have to not succeed in order to succeed. Sorry, I feel like Gabriel, you've been wanting to say something for a well, while. I, I, I don't know, I'm, I might go off on a rant to stop me. Uh, just mute me if I do. Um, I mean, first of all, first of all, Dev Patel. Yeah, I mean, if it was anyone else, He's so darn adorable in this film. And, and so he kind of, you know, he's constantly saving the cat just with his face. Um, so, you know, he, he carries that off. Um, the point about knights and the code of honor and knights being great people, that's um, kind of a 19th century idea. Um, it's a 20th century fantasy idea as well. 
Um, okay, so there's historical knights, and then there's knights from literature. Um, and medieval literature has sort of this idea of like knightly codes and stuff. But if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, when they talk about the pirate's code, and then they say it's more of a, a guideline, that's basically the chivalric code. Um, and it doesn't really become a thing in history until like the late Middle Ages anyway. It's kind of thing in, in literature, like, but it's pretty loosely defined. So you've got the Pentecostal oath in La Morte d'Arthur, but it's really basic stuff. It's um, help woman, help. If someone asks for mercy, give them mercy, um, help woman or um, die, which is very extreme. Um, and it's really not that much stuff. Um, the, the, the kind of the thing lurking in all of this is that men are absolute bastards. Um, they just are. If you give them a sword, which like, don't forget, a sword is a hard piece of metal, sharp piece of metal. It's designed to murder people. It's awful. Give them a horse. If you ever try to fight someone on a horse, don't. You'll lose. You'll, you'll get trampled. They're higher up than you. Give them armor. They're, they're powerful, awful, brutish people, these knights. And there is this implication of this in, in the, the text and in the film. So there's a bit where um, the lady of the castle says, uh, my body is yours, you're stronger than me. It's a bit in the film with this saint, Winifred, um, who's been murdered uh, and I think raped as well by a knight. Um, so that's kind of, you know, this idea of kind of like knights as paragons of chivalry and stuff like that. Chivalry just literally just means owning a horse, um, which means that you're rich and you're probably a bastard. So um, there is this kind of idea of the kind of the code of chivalry in, in the Middle Ages, but it's it's not kind of this defined thing. And to go back to your point, Sarah, which I think is a great point, I can't discern the moral premise. Um, what is this film's message? Well, I think the text's message and the film's message is life is complicated. So we have these kind of ideals. Be courteous. Okay, fine. Got it. I'll be courteous. Right. But what does that actually mean? So if you go to someone's house and the Lord goes out hunting and the lady of the house says, uh, can I kiss you? Well, it'd be rude not to kiss her back. Right. But then how far do you go? Like what, well, like if she's offering you a gift, do you take that gift? Um, you want to be courteous to woman, but you also want to respect the person whose house you're in. The moral message at the end of Gawain and the Green Knight, the text, is kind of weird. It's like the Green, the green Knight punishes Gawain for wearing the sash, which protects him from death, or so he believes, and not giving that up. And the Green Knight says, you know, I'm punishing you for this because you should have given it up, but I understand why you did it because I would have done the same. So what is the message that that we shouldn't try to protect ourselves from dying? It's complicated, it's weird, it's ambiguous. Um, and that's kind of the point. That's the whole point. It's messy, life is messy. It's not, you know, we can have all these ideas about kind of the code of chivalry and stuff like that, but that's not how it works in real life. Uh, the best thing the code of chivalry can do is not make you a good person, but stop bad people from doing bad things. And in that uh, sense, Gawain is a good person. Um, compared to the other knights, compared to those robbers who rob him and stuff like that, he's um, a good person. But he's not really trying to be a good person in the sense that 
we might think of knights being good people, being chivalrous in the kind of the modern sense of the word. So anyway, that's my rant. That's my lecture. Sorry about that. That was not quite the lecture I was anticipating, and I loved every second of it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's so many different points of this too that like I was um, thinking about Morgan, who you know Morgan Le Fay in in Arthurian lore is this uh, half sister of King Arthur, and in many uh, reimaginings she lures Arthur into sleeping with her and trickery, and you know is kind of always an antagonistic presence um, in the text. And in this one, she is Gawain's mother. Um, and at the beginning she sends, uh, we, we assume it's her, you know, pulling the strings of, of the puppet. She, she puts on a, a blindfold, um, the magic girdle of, of power um, and controls the situation. I assume to humiliate Guinevere because that's kind of the, the line that we have in terms of Arthurian lore. And then once her son takes up the challenge, oh crap, I have to continue this, you know, because it's her son. So there's like such a different, I don't know, way that we get into this story that it starts with just embarrassing Guinevere. And now all of a sudden, here's her son going off on this year long challenge to behead a random dude in the woods who looks like Treebeard. How did I get here? So yeah, when we're talking about life is messy, I think we can also talk about characters are messy and these, these, motivations are real messy but here we are um what did you guys think about some of these peripheral characters that we do have some unique ones winifred of the well and morgan i don't know if you want to pick anybody and just kind of start chatting about them um well one thing i think maybe we touched on this a little bit when we were putting the document together ahead of time and i've seen some comments on other things is um this interesting thing where it's sort of implied that all the characters are one character, um, you know, which again, that's t jumping off of something in the original or in the source text of, of it's Morgan behind the Green Knight and for the purpose of, of you know, embarrassing or scaring Guinevere, like you said. But um, in the film, we get that extended because of these um, kind of doublings, these, these dual associations of the lady Lady Bertilac with Essen played by the same actress. So they're sort of equated. But then we also get the implication that Morgan is behind all of the people in the castle. So the Lord and the Lady and the other, you know, uh, figure in the castle with the blindfold, which is explicitly linked visually to Morgan, back to the mother. Um, and then again, to the Green Knight, who is in the text, I think, like, he's also Lady, or he's also Lord Bertilac, but then in this, his face for a minute kind of molds through various different characters, not just the Lord. So what does that mean? Um, one thing that jumped out to me is that um, the Lady played by Alicia Vikander is um, associated with photography. Um, like the portrait that she takes is this weird kind of primitive photograph image of, of Gawain. Um, so that makes me think, okay, she's, she's a kind of filmmaker. She also has all these manuscripts that she says she makes edits to all the time. So it kind of seems to me like maybe this is like a stand-in for Lowry or something. I don't know if I'm reading too much into that. Um, but he's definitely like wanting to play around with 
putting himself into the story and and making it very clear like this is a story with we get like explicit puppetry and all this stuff and there's the mother as this sort of magical puppet puppeteer who's manipulating all these things around Gawain um and it's interesting Maggie that you said that you thought that that wasn't the attention intention the whole time because I kind of assumed the whole point of all of this is the mother trying to arrange Gawain's ascendancy um so it's interesting that you kind of thought that she kind of improvised that when he jumped in in a way that he wasn't supposed to um but my point being all of these many of these secondary and tertiary characters are all kind of linked with each other and and maybe all one in the same which is kind of weird I'll pop up a slide real quick of just some of the characters we're talking about so you can get a, a quick visual And just staring at these two, I'm like, I don't know if we want to dig too deep into this yet, but how about like the whole idea of, of death? Because I'm looking at this Arthur and Guinevere and this is a dying Camelot. These guys look like cadavers. <laughs> um, and this is a very different way for us to see Camelot than we have seen in pretty much any other reiteration. Um, and the theme of death, I mean, that's a huge thing for Lowry anyway, but I, I like how it was played with in here um, and using green throughout as an actual symbol of death as in addition to all the other things it's symbolized as and kind of nature reclaiming and, and um, the lush moss covered, you know, woods that he goes into and the green chapel is moldering. Like there's, there's this real feeling of kind of falling apart. It's not the, the, highly constructed medieval world that I think we all imagine in our minds necessarily. But I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that. I just remember the image of Arthur pulling out a tooth at one point, <laughs> like literally rotting away, sitting there. Um, yeah. I loved that depiction of Arthur, Sean Harris, uh, yeah. you know, going. I would speak to thee so that I may know thee. He's like everyone's creepy uncle at Thanksgiving, you know? Um, and I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't think he was that cadaver like, but I, 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 I'm used to literary depictions of King Arthur that paint him like that. Um, so we're actually doing quite a few in the course next year. So it's sure to be fun. Uh, EA Robinson, Clemens Houseman, um, you know, have some have some this idea of Arthur is kind of rotting away, and even in the medieval um, texts, um, there's a bit of a, an Arthur problem, which is that Arthur is the adventurer. He pulls the sword from the stone, blah blah blah. He finds his kingdom, and then what does he do? He just sort of sits there and he listens to stories because that's what kings do. So, if you're in court, you're kind of uh, wasting away a little bit. Um, you don't go on these adventures. Um, so I don't know, I, 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 it just sort of um, fitted with that. I mean, I, I, I wasn't confused by any of this because I'm maybe not thinking about it too deeply. Um, I think a lot of the imagery just looks really cool. I did like... you catch that, that hot second where, did you guys see Merlin first of all? He's only in like 
two seconds of a shot but it was like a hot second where the gauntlet is thrown and the challenge is thrown and you can see merlin look at king arthur being like no dude don't take this yeah and i love it like that's like the only exchange we have with merlin like arthur no you're done there's a few like really small things that if you know the text well or if you know the Tyrion legend well you understand i mean there's like a reference to fives um Raina the fox is in it you know that that cgi fox thing that you think oh they're taking some liberties here that's in the text um they're just expanding it i think kat your point about the doubles that's in the text as well they're just expanding it it feels like a lot of this is like it's in the text and they're just taking it further so you know the the full-on snog between the lord the lord of the castle and dev patel uh, i'm not calling him gawain anymore i'm just calling him dev patel that's kind of like implied in the text um, why not push it a bit further? That's basically what they do. Why not have um, explicit, you know, masturbation and blah, blah, blah. Um, it's just pushing everything a little bit further. Um, but it's all kind of in the text, which is, which I really liked, including those kind of minor characters. Even the ones that aren't in the text are sort of in the text, um, if you know what I mean. Like, it, I, I, my feeling about this is if you could take the Gawain poet into the future in a time machine, Introduce them to the idea of cinema, first of all. Start them off with something nice and easy like Sister Act, just to get them to understand what film is. Then show them this film. They might not like it. They might like it. They might not like it. But I think they would understand it. I think they would see where this, where David Lowry was going with this. And then they'd probably discuss it over a tankard of mead down the pub. So... Yeah, it feels like it fits in with the text in that way. But I don't know. Other people might disagree. I love that we're starting with Sister Act. <laughs> Got to start somewhere. Sister Mary Clarence, you know. Um, I, so uh, some of the things that you mentioned a moment ago, Maggie, about um, um, like a kingdom in decay versus, uh, you know, contrasting with the lush green imagery um of the night and all of these other um you know big meadows and you know the forest and you know all of these things um i remember reading um that david lowry um was leaning in into that like uh believing like you know humanity is going to eventually decay and then nature is going to rise up again um and overtake um humanity in that way so i thought that was like that's a really interesting um um theme and it's definitely represented visually here in this film really well yeah it just occurred to me i'm auditing um the signum ursula Le Guin course right now with chris swank and she talked a little bit about certain of Le Guin's works as fitting into this eco-disaster, um, eco-tastrophe kind of genre. And I feel like this, this film definitely would fit in with that. Um, even though we don't see it coming, we don't, we don't see the event, there's definitely an implication that there's, that's the fate of the world eventually, or at least the fate of these human civilizations and institutions is, um, which is why like, it's so interesting to have green as the color of death. That's sort of an unusual choice, but but it's green in the sense of the moss that grows over old ruins and the and the rotting of 
dying things. And, you know, so it, it kind of twists the, your interpretation of what, what the green might normal, as well as being resonant with other things with the Christmas and the youthfulness of Gawain and the nature and the paganism and all that kind of stuff. And wasn't green, Gabriel, you might know this, wasn't green in, in medieval times actually the color of lust? I don't know. I mean, gr green-eyed monster, isn't that Shakespeare? The yeah. Envy, envy, but um, mm -hmm. I don't know about lust. Um, it's in maybe. the back of my brain from something. I'll Google it later. But I, I think one of the translations I read was a Norton critical edition, and it had some critical essays, and that sounds familiar from one of those, so that, that okay. might that might be the case. Yeah, it's niggling as a, a thing. And we, we know green with envy and green eyed monster, certainly. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're, if you're looking ill, you're green, you know? Yeah. Excalibur. Right. right. It's, it's, it can be both life and, and death and sickness. It, mm -hmm. And it's interesting talk about like the dueling and the twinning of things. It, it's kind of a two-faced color. Yeah. It, and, and this isn't a profound point, but Excalibur, John Borman's film Excalibur has everything has a green tint to it as well um uh, yeah all the armor sort of reflects green um I, I think he's going for kind of I mean there's a kind of whole wasteland motif mm -hmm. to that um film so so it's a similar kind of thing to what you're talking about that kind of eco critical reading and I think you can certainly see that in like the alternative future that we saw at the end that you know if you had gone that way yep world really would crumble um I do want to talk about the end, so we'll get to that in, in a second, but also we're talking about just kind of how this is built together in visuals. Um, let me see if I can share this one. So this is the round table um, in King Arthur's court, and there were so many bits that I loved about this just in terms of like how a scene is structured. Um, I was telling these guys like I could have made a drinking game out of the rule of thirds in this movie. And if you're not familiar with rule of thirds, it's basically like this idea with photography and cinematography that you can take an image and divide it by three um, vertically and horizontally. And it's just really pleasing to our eyes. Like our brain is just really happy when you can do that, when you can divide something into, into thirds. So you can see that with this one, that we have a really clear element in the middle. We have clear lines splitting it um, horizontally as well. So this is just a well-structured shot but light really stuck out for me for this. So this is King Arthur's court, right? It's supposed to be this bright, shining symbol. Um, and it's so dark. It is so dark. And the only, I mean, we can tell it's daylight. There's teeny tiny windows with day outside, but inside the court, it is nothing but dark. And the only source of light is the open doors. But before those, you know, were opened, they were all shut off and the only source of light light was from this one element up top this window that we can see just kind of pouring down onto the round table so i just thought that was a really interesting decision it's dark it is dismal and the only source of light is a one singular thing coming down shining upon this table um i also thought this was neat because he talked david lowry talked about making this shot um, and this is the scene that he edited over and over and over and over again for like a year. And he wanted a wider shot than the room could actually give them. So he did the old school uh, matte painting, which I don't know if you guys have seen that. They did that in like, you know, decades and decades and decades ago, where you take a piece of glass and you paint on the glass additional elements of the scene and you just put that in front of the camera. So it makes it look like there's a lot more happening. So when you look at the scene, these, I don't know if you can see my cursor, um, these guys over on the sides are all painted. 
these are not real actors or extras. They're, they're painted into the scene. Um, and they also used Weta Workshop to do all the special effects. There's very little um, CG close up. Um, if I go to this one, this is our Green Knight. All of this is prosthetics which I think is a little bit ropey from time to time, especially when you can see like the skin of the eyes move and the the pieces didn't move with it. But in general, I, I love that they used Weta and real prosthetics and, you know, classic tricks of filmmaking as opposed to all CG, which might have for me broken that fourth wall of, of, oh yeah, we just made this up. Like the giants, I thought the giants were cool for a moment. I think I got a picture of them too. The giants were cool for a moment, because we only have this quick little line in the story about giants. And now we get this whole funky scene where he's like trying to hitch a ride. That's that made me kind of chuckle, but visually they irked me because it took me out of the rest of the real world story that Gawain was giving me. There's my little rant about visuals. I, I, I really liked them because I'm kind of tired of Arthurian movies that try to do this is the real history behind the legend and I kind of loved that this movie was like nope this is a legend <laughs> and we're going for it and yeah I can see your point that the the giants are maybe the one the least like the other things the other visuals in the movie um but I I, I think they're pretty cool looking and um and I just liked the idea of them okay I thought the giants were weird <laughs> sorry I, I i the first time i saw it it was later at night and i i dozed off for like five minutes and i woke up and these giants are on my screen i was like what did somebody put something in my drink like what <laughs> like what am i watching so i i was a little confused by that because i didn't remember the giants from the original poem and so i know why now because it was only one line um so that that is that was really um, interesting to me, but, uh, but backtracking just a little bit. Um, I really love, I'm a big fan of practical effects. Um, you know, I love horror movies. Some of the best horror movies had like a $5 budget. And so they're making everything up as they go. And, you know, many of them are, you know, the best ones were like prior to the advent of, uh, CGI and, and, um, digital, um, and it pretty good on screen like as a practical effect it's always going to look good on screen as a practical effect cgi will eventually age um but practical effects don't and so i really love that um about the film i think that was part of the reason the aesthetic really appealed to me and i did not realize it was what a workshop so that that is another reason because it's that's that's the lord of the rings which i love so very cool yeah, I mean, I, I really love the aesthetics as well. And I think some of the choices were made in order to get away from um, associations. So this film, you know, it, do, it actually does do that kind of um, Kira Knightley, King Arthur film thing where it's sort of just like the story behind the story, but it just does it much better. Um, so, you know, giants, okay, there's a problem with giants. Um Jack and the Beanstalk, Chronicles of Narnia. We, we have this idea in our heads. Um, most audiences have this idea in their heads of giants and it's kind of familiar. And we forget the giants are freaky and weird and disturbing. Um, someone should not be that big. 
Uh, and so we have to do things to get back to that original idea of how disturbing a giant is. Same thing with knights. You know, we've got this idea of what a knight is. It's not really the case in the literature and in history. So we do stuff to kind of um, defamiliarize um, that concept. Um, the biggest one there is the Green Knight. You know, he's not particularly green in the film. Uh, in the book, sorry, in the poem, um, he is a human being. He's big. He's he's very large and he's very green. He's got this green beard and green face and all the rest of it. Just think about all the associations that has now. Uh, green Giant, Captain Planet, St. Patrick's Day. It would look terrible if they tried to do that. So that's why they got Treebeard the end, who, to be fair, has not worked since Lord of the Rings. They've given him a job. And even though it kind of almost works against the film, because in the book, in the sorry, in the poem, um, King Arthur's Court think it's a supernatural thing because it's such a marvelous spectacle, but it's not so so obviously supernatural. Like it's not that surprising when the tree guy gets his head cut off and he picks it back up again because you think, well, obviously he's a tree guy. Um, but I can see why they made that decision aesthetically in order to make the Green Knight disturbing and wondrous and magical again in the way that for a 14th century audience hearing about a man with a green beard and green face would be really kind of weird and disturbing and marvelous. Absolutely, I, I don't wanna cut off anybody's, is there anything else we want to discuss, especially on that, because that wrapped it up so beautifully, I think, but we have to talk about the end. Yeah, should we, should we move it? Is there anything else you wanna talk about before that? All right, so the end, I had a friend that messaged me saying, hey, I just watched this weird movie called The Green Knight, what was that end about? And I was like, tune in on Tuesday. Um, so I would love for us to be able to talk about that. Ashley, I love how you had a friend warn you that it was basically a silent film because that immediately put it in context for me of just like, that's what this is. It's It just so beautifully told a story visually and sound. I didn't need dialogue. Um, and it went on and on and on that I most definitely thought it was uh, a a real thing. And then a few minutes in, I was going, oh, oh, this is really a real thing. And then a few more minutes in, I'm going, oh, wait, is this an alternative? And it did that for long enough for me to go through that cycle a few times. Mm -hmm. So I'll throw it to you guys. What did you think about the end? And was it ambiguous? Um, and so I, I thought the, this, the whole silent film ending worked really well, uh, just to kind of illustrate this potential ending and, and, and I will say that um I I remember I knew I knew that part was coming though I had not been given details of what is happening um I just 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 know like the last 20-30 minutes is a silent movie and so you gotta watch real close I'm like okay fine I can roll with that uh, but I'm watching this and I was like, I don't remember the, any of this in the poem. <laughs> I don't think this is how this is supposed to end. Um, but then when it cuts back to the green chapel and he takes off the sash, he's like, no, I'm ready. And that's, that's, I was like, okay, that is perfect. I understand why they, they, they chose to do that. Uh, because, you know, you watch this silent film and Gowan will not take off that sash for anything. He, has sex with it on he bathes with it on he you know wears it all the time um under his kingly garments and everything else and um so you know when 
you see Gowan finally take off the sash and, and then, you know, get down in front of the knight and say, I'm ready. Um, that just made that moment just so much more powerful to me uh, because he had basically, you know, it's kind of like one of those, uh, you know, I had a near-death experience and I saw my life flash before my eyes sort of thing. And I mean, that's really what's happening right there. Um, and then- Especially with his two falterings before that, you know, right. where the flinch, the flinch and the non-flinch. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so when you see the knight kind of grin and smile and just do this, um, because I mean, the promise is that um, I will deal to the knight that can land a blow on me, the same blow, and he will have uh, my friendship after that. Um, and so you see the knight like very playfully, yep, there you go. That's all you get. And, you know, he's now friends with the knight. And see, I did not think that ending was ambiguous at all. Other people like, you, you, the last shot is the, the the knight smiling at him. Like, is he gonna, you know, well, you know, in the last second. Um, but, you know, that's, to me, that was not what happened. And that was not what was going to happen. The knight was met, uh, met him with friendship. So. Anybody else have thoughts on that? Well, but there should be three blows. And we only get two, right? Well, why should there be three? Because because they, they don't follow the kind of the three knights thing in the castle. That's the whole well, point. There's three blows. Absolutely. And I and again, that's where I think like again, what seems like small changes earlier on add up to big changes in mm -hmm. the end. That like the parallel structure of the three temptations and the three hunts and the three blows, he does change that earlier and and kind of messes with that structure a little bit and so yeah I then I think that is a fair question is there there I mean there there should be three in the sense that the green knight promised them earlier on but in terms of the I guess Lowry the author like the structure of the film is maybe implying that he's gonna let him slide for that third one um so yeah but but then in, I I don't know that it's I do think that there is still some ambiguity for me. Um, you know, I mean, the final line is there off with your head. So what does that mean? Um, and I was talking with uh, a friend, Laurie Beckoff, this past weekend, um, who gave a presentation at a, a, a Harry Potter conference about Harry Potter and um, games in medieval chivalry and, um, and medieval romance and the parallels between those. And um, so she brought up the Green Knight. So I was asking her about what she thought of the ending. And uh, what she said, I think, is in line with what some of the things that we were saying on this um, discussion about um, the deliberate, the fact that the poem has been reinterpreted so many times and even just scholarly interpretations of the original text no one can quite agree what is this about. And, and as Gabriel was saying about the complicated messiness of the message of did Gawain achieve his honor or not? And how does he feel about that? How does the court feel about that? How do we, the reader, feel about that? And none of those things can we quite settle and agree on. And so her interpretation of the ending was there, there's a deliberate non-answer to the question of what happens next, um, that it ends, 
before the ending and that it's maybe the film's way of saying you the 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 reader or the viewer get to go off and decide the ending of the story um and it's a deliberate you know concession of declaring an ending and just handing it over to the audience which I thought was an interesting uh, way of reading that mm-hmm. yeah I'm, I'm with that uh life is complicated um I wouldn't want any other ending I wouldn't want it to be all wrapped up neatly in a bow at the end uh and I think um it felt like it was a more ambiguous nuanced ending for more arguably more morally ambiguous times um, you know, uh, I think I think we're aware of kind of people who are sort of bad in some ways, good in other ways. Um, you know, political figures and and that sort of thing. Um, it's it it seems less and less clear what how to, to to do the right thing anymore. You know, I I thought I was being good by drinking almond milk, but then it turns out that almond milk is also terrible for the planet. So I need to drink uh, oat milk now. Um, I mean things like um, the TV show, The Good Place sort of plays around with the kind of the, the, the difficulties of the modern age. So I thought the, um, the ending worked for that for, for 2021. I think you're right. It, like we've been saying this whole time, it is messy and so is the end, it's messy. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the, in the original story, doesn't he just give him like a little bit of a, a nick yep. on the neck mm-hmm. and then he goes back to the court and tells his story and everyone's like, oh, you're so amazing. We're all going to wear this green, you know, sash around to, to honor your honor. I always thought that was a bit crap that he, <laughs> he just got a little nick on the neck because he actually lied and then they honored him for that. Like that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Whereas actually what you were saying, how clear this was, you know, I, you know, I'm picturing, um, Dr. Strange, you know, going through all the different options that he can see in the future. And the one that we get to see is this horrible one where the world crumbles and he chose all the wrong things and wronged all the people that loved him. Um, So then ripping off the sash is just such a clear disavowal of that life. And I don't know what this one's going to offer me, but it's not that. So therefore, sash gone. And Mm -hmm. that is the important part to me. I don't know what happens after that either. And I don't really feel like I need to decide. I would like to think that it's friendship and we get more time with Dev Patel in our lives. Um, that would be nice. But I think the most important part is they ripped off the sash. That is the end of the film, right? I mean, you know, they could just do a sequel and call it The Green Knight 2 Electric Green Boogaloo. And I would be very happy because we got more Dev Patel. Uh, but uh, I think also like, Oh no, what a cliffhanger. <laughs> at, at, the, uh, Wait, at the- Rewind. Oh, I'm sorry. Did my internet freeze? It did. Oh, I'm so sorry. I said, you know, we could um, we could have a sequel and be more Dev Patel and we could call it The Green Knight 2 Electric Green Boogaloo. And I'm going to be really happy with that because it's more Dev Patel. Um, but the uh, I think some people are also getting a little tripped up by the little stinger scene at the end credits. Did you all watch all the way to the end? I don't think I saw the end credits. No, you need to what? tell me. Gabriel, I, I, I did, but I've, I've but I've forgotten what it was. I, I, but I, yeah, remind so me. It's his daughter from you know the the uh, silent film at the end. Uh, she oh yeah, picks up the crown and puts it on her head. 
um, but, but the crown is on the floor. You don't see his head that's rolled off somewhere. Um, so um, some people are all like, well, wait a minute. Does that mean that that still happened and whatever? Um, but to me, I just thought that was um, David Lowry having a good Yeah. Life. So, that just feels more like a tongue-in-cheek David Lowry than yeah, any kind I, I, of statement of story. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I, I mean, to be totally fair, I've not seen any of David Lowry's work, so um, that, you know, teasing sort of stinger at the end of his films, but um, I, it made me laugh. I don't, I don't know if other people feel that way, but I, I know some people are like, but wait, what about that part at the end? And it's like, it doesn't even make like narrative sense for that to have happened anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think of, of, of all the endings, the thing that doesn't happen seems to be the thing in the vision that like the one thing we seem to be able to know for certain is that he doesn't go that way. Um, yeah. And um, but in terms of Lowry's other work, I definitely want to plug um, a short film that he did called Pioneer, which you can find on YouTube for free and um, really interesting 15 minutes. And it's just a father or what we presume is a father. He calls himself a father um, talking to a young boy who he's saying is his son and telling him the, the boy wants to hear the story of his parents and how, where, where he came from and how he came to be born and all this. And you get the impression he's been told this story before. So this is like a bedtime story he wants to be told. And the father spins this 15 minute monologue, increasingly kind of tall tale. Um, And that's all you get is just this one little frame on this father and son. And the tale gets wilder and wilder. And part of you wants to believe it. And part of you is like, not sure is this is he lying to this boy? Is this just a story that they both know is fictional? Is this really true? You don't know. Um, So it seems like this deliberate playing with stories and fiction and ambiguity of what's true outside the frame of the, of the movie is a concern of his. Absolutely. I'm, I'm tempted to say let's wrap it up here because I feel like we've, we've, had our say on the end is there anything else anybody wants to throw in here before we we wrap up this session no but we should end on a ambiguous note like i'm just about to say Did something we? and then we just no. end yeah, exactly. cut off mid-sentence everyone's yeah. internet cuts out <laughs> um does anybody want to plug anything they're doing we've got gabriel's course next semester for signum um go ahead <laughs> um well i'm 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 inspired i want to do a group reading of the poem at Signum at the winter solstice. Um, so if you haven't read the text and you're a bit afraid to read the text or you read the text a while ago and you want to do it in a group, then look out for details about that. We'll try and get through the whole poem in one session. It'll probably take two and a half hours, something like that. Um, but it is doable in one session. So look out for that around the winter solstice, around the time of the poem. Uh, so do check that out and join us if you can. Bring your cocoa. Spike it if need be. Oh, Ashley, just yeah, sorry. Gabriel, question about that. Uh, yeah. Would you be reading Tolkien's uh, translation of the poem? Be right reasons we would not. Um, we'd be going for one of the very nice 19th century or early Public 20th century Public domain ones, editions. got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. which are good. also good. Uh, there's no such thing as a bad translation or a perfect translation. Got it. 
and we'll have links to everybody's um, podcasts and blogs and works and whatnot in the um, description of the YouTube. And keep an eye on Mythgard because that will be changing in the next couple of months. And hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we'll have a new landing page and things like that. Because um, there will be a few bits trickling out of Mythgard over the next couple of weeks. And then probably a little bit more deluge <laughs> in the near future. But thank you guys for coming along. And thank you everybody for attending live or watching this later on. Um, if you do have suggestions for what you would like us to discuss in the future, definitely get in touch. Um, we know we're going to be doing Dune. I mean, it just has to be done. And I think I'm going to try to put together a bit of a schedule for the next couple of months so we have a good idea of the things that are coming out and you can look ahead to things that uh, we will discuss and we can put together some pretty banging panels to talk about it. So awesome. Thanks, guys. Have an ambiguous evening. Thanks very much, everyone. Great Thank to you. talk. Yeah. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.